Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. About 10 years ago now, I came across a remark from Derek Jeter, the shortstop for the New York Yankees, right before he was about to retire. And what he said, just as a sort of toss-away remark, um, really hit home with me. It really taught me something. And what he said was, growing up, I always wanted to play shortstop for the New York Yankees. And this struck me because uh, for a time there, I also wanted to be the shortstop for the New York Yankees or play anywhere uh, for the Yankees. And when I went and looked at the year that Jeter was born, I realized that it was entirely possible that uh, even though he's uh, a few years older than me, it's entirely possible that he was playing Little League, I think, out in Long Island. And I was playing uh, Little League a few years under where he would have been in somewhere in Ohio. And it's possible that both of us at the same time were both fantasizing about one day uh, playing shortstop for the New York Yankees. And it struck me with all the talk that I have done on this podcast about quote-unquote fame and success, it struck me how few people are actually able to fulfill many of those early uh those early and really intense and really uh, really vivid ideas of what you want to do when you're a kid, those, those first things that you were like, wow, if I could do that. Hardly anybody actually is able to succeed in doing those things. It's, it's very few people who do. And I came across a few other remarks just like it uh, recently as well. This comes from Daniel Mendelssohn. I read part of his book, uh, the Lost here uh, two or so weeks ago, and he is writing in The New Yorker, and this is from something he wrote in 2012, and he says, in the 1970s, when I was a teenager and had fantasies of growing up to be a writer, I didn't dream of being a novelist or a poet. I wanted to be a critic. I thought criticism was exciting, and I found critics admirable. This was because I learned from them. Every week, a copy of The New Yorker would arrive at our house on Long Island, wrapped in a brown paper upon which the, I thought, disingenuously modest label newspaper was printed. And I would hijack the issue before my dad came home from work in order to continue an education that was, then, more important to me than the one I was getting in high school. And he goes on to talk about the early critics. He goes, uh, he becomes uh, sort of enamored with, including uh, the great Helen Vendler, who uh, writes so well, who has been writing so well about poetry for so long. And it struck me there, too, how many uh, kind of bookish kids throughout America uh, growing up in the 1970s sort of came upon a magazine like The New Yorker uh, or The New York Review of Books or, or many other things uh, by accident and suddenly realized that these were their people, this is what they wanted to do. How many of those kids 
actually grew up to be able to write words like that uh, and be published in the New Yorker themselves. I would guess uh, probably more than had been the shortstop for the New York Yankees since, uh, you know, since 1920 or so. But still, uh, not everybody by a long shot. And I thought it was spectacular when I was reading uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, memoir, Born to Run, that uh, he had the presence of mind not just to... Uh, um, not just to retell uh, what his, who his early heroes were in rock and roll, but he had the presence of mind to have the exact same realization that I did. Uh, Derek Jeter never said anything about, I'm sure there are a lot of other kids who wanted to be shortstop for the Yankees, but that ended up falling on me. Uh, Daniel Mendelssohn, I don't think, says anything like that um, in his essay either. But Bruce Springsteen does, and look at this wonderful paragraph from his book. He says, uh, look at it like this. In 1964, millions of kids saw the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and decided, that looks like fun. Some of them went out and bought instruments. Some of them learned to play a little. Some got good enough to maybe join a local band. Some might have even made a demo tape. Some might have lucked out and gotten a record label of some sort. A few of those might have sold some records and done some touring. A few of those might have had a small hit, a short career in music, and managed to eke out a modest living. A very few of those might have managed to make a life as a musician, and a very, very few might have had some continuing success that brought them fame, fortune, and deep gratification and tonight, one of those ended up standing between Mick Jagger and George Harrison, a stone and a beetle. Of course, he's talking about himself. Uh, I think he's uh, doing something for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he is uh, being asked to play with uh, Mick Jagger and George Harrison and the Rolling Stones. He says, uh, Bruce Springsteen says, I did not fool myself about what the odds were back in 1964 that one would have been the acne-faced 15-year-old kid with a cheap Kent guitar from Freehold, New Jersey. My parents were right. My chances were one, one in a million, in many millions, but still, here I was. I knew my talents, and I knew I worked hard, but these, these were the gods, and I was, well, one hard-working guitar man. I carried the journeyman in me, for better or for worse, a commonness, and I always would. I like that last sentence. I carried the journeyman in me, for better or for worse, a commonness, and I always would. He had the, uh, and I guess that's why he had that, the sense of mind to... Uh, to see that because he carries that commonness within himself. I had that realization again today uh, when I went to go see the new movie Maestro, uh, starring and directed and uh, co-written by uh, Bradley Cooper. Uh, on the one hand, it's because I remember watching um, Inside the Actor's Studio many years ago. I've talked about that as well um, at one of my old jobs where I was able to sit at a table and do some kind of 
counting change work and stuffing pennies into the sleeves and quarters and nickels and dimes that came from uh, soda machines and water and uh, water water bottle machines into those little sleeves and then taken to the bank. And I remember seeing, watching uh, inside the actor's studio, that at the end of some of the sessions with the actors or the actresses, they would have a Q and A with the uh, with the audience, which were made up, I'm pretty sure, almost entirely of students um, at the actor's studio. And one of those students in one of those episodes was uh, a much younger Bradley Cooper, I think from the year 2000 or so. And uh, and again, I think uh, just in terms of Hollywood, um, how many people that Bradley Cooper went to the actor studio with have ended up where he has? Um, how much of it is his own uh, innate or just... Uh, uh, mentally worked on talent, uh, how much of it is luck, how much of it is being in the right place at the right time. If you want to think about the Beatles and you think of the massive progression that they made uh, between I Want to Hold Your Hand and just only a few years later doing uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver, the question is, um, is that uh, innate talent? Is that um, discipline to work and improve? Or is it just what would happen to anybody, to any group that was reasonably good, that suddenly got really famous and didn't have to worry about much of anything else. And they had a lot of time to really figure out uh, what they wanted to do and what they could really do uh, with their chosen medium, in this case, music. Um, I think of that with actors as well. How much of it is uh, talent and discipline? How much of it is chance? Um, how many actors, given, uh, given Bradley Cooper's uh, opportunities that he's had over the past 10 years or so since he really came into the public eye. Um, how many of them would have chosen to do the things that he has done? Um, how many of them would have wound themselves around to uh, wanting to do uh, a two-hour uh, not-quite-biopic about Leonard Bernstein, uh, of all people, and uh, to have actually gotten it done and to actually have it be a pretty good movie? Um, how many people would have been able to uh, do that? How much of it is your own uh, talent and your own genius, and how much of it is uh, being given a chance, uh, almost by random, almost at random, and being able to run with it and take chances that other people, simply because their means and their circumstances and uh, uh, whatever it is, has not led them to have that same kind of success. That's one aspect of it. Uh, the other aspect which I thought was hilarious was that uh, uh, I was only one of three people in the theater, and I'm pretty sure the other people in the theater were at least 70 or 80 years old, which made me feel great. Um, and you have to wonder why. Uh, is there really no one in suburban uh, Pittsburgh who wants to go see this movie? Because it was the only theater that was showing it. Um, so you figure it would have funneled all of them on a weekday to that theater, but of course, uh, no, at least not at the uh, lunchtime showing. But the other thing, too, is that uh, you sort of have layers and layers of, of fame and the way we handle people that we admire and things like that. So that, for instance, you have someone like Leonard Bernstein, who uh, greatly admired and learned a great deal from the music of Mahler. And then you have a uh, 
One of the great scenes in the movie Maestro is a recreation, I think from the mid-70s, of a concert that uh, Bernstein put on at Ely Cathedral in England, where he's putting on, uh, where he's conducting, I think, Mahler's Sixth Symphony. So you have, on the one hand, in real life, uh, quote-unquote real life, uh, Leonard Bernstein having the, uh, for, for one thing, living the huge and eventful life that he did, and near the end of it, near the end of his uh, conducting and composing career, being able to conduct uh, Mahler's Sixth Symphony at Ely Cathedral to a packed cathedral in England, and the rush and the sense of uh, fulfillment and just energy and joy that, that must have been evident in, uh, in him to have been able to do this. He must have, as a child, uh, in the way of Derek Jeter have thought, I would really like someday to be able to conduct Mahler's Sixth Symphony uh, in such an ideal setting as a cathedral like this or, or some other space, Carnegie Hall. And he was able to do it. And what kind of a rush is that? But then you come to uh, Bradley Cooper's version of that, where he struggles as an actor and only slowly becomes known through comedies. And when he starts doing dramas, people don't take him seriously. and People probably still don't take him seriously. I'm not a judge of actors or of directors or a film or anything like that, really. Um, I just know what I like, I suppose, and, and I enjoyed the movie. Um, and what it must have been like for him, for someone who admired Bernstein and also admired Mahler, to suddenly be able to recreate that moment in Ely uh, Cathedral with a full orchestra and to be able to, uh, to conduct it uh, himself um, as Leonard Bernstein. Um, there's just whole spirals of what we do with uh, our heroes and what we do with fame and the things that we grow up wanting to be able to do. I'm thinking of uh, all the people who love classical music, all the people who love, specifically who love somebody like Mahler, who know Mahler back and forth, um, who go to see Mahler all the time, wherever they can go and see Mahler done. Um, the, the fantasies that people like that would have had to, who continue to have what it would be like to conduct Mahler or to play in one of the orchestras um, and, and what it must be like for them to see someone like Bradley Cooper being able to recreate it, to, uh, to do it in his own way, um, to do something that they will never themselves be able to do uh, either. And it's just kind of an incredible way to be thinking about all of this stuff. And so what I wanted to close with, actually, is, uh, is Bradley Cooper talking about... Um, about filming those scenes at Ely Cathedral and what a rush it was uh, creatively as an actor, as a director, as a performer, as someone who is trying to embody not just himself, but a, a uh, conductor and composer like uh, Leonard Bernstein. Um, and also just someone who has the, the film riding on him and on his ability to do this thing, um, what it was like for him to, uh, to do that. Because while it's nice to tell the story of uh, about Derek Jeter and uh, to read Daniel Mendelssohn's words and to even read Bruce Springsteen's words. It's something else entirely 
to be able to hear the person themselves uh, talking about that kind of experience that they went through and to be able to hear it uh, in their own voice, uh, the rush and the joy of what that kind of experience must have been like. And so uh, here is that for you right now. I've got to ask you about conducting in the Ely Cathedral in England mm. with a full orchestra, the London Symphony Orchestra, and a full chorus. You're conducting Mahler. I mean, I mean, that's got to be a childhood fantasy come true. Yes, sure is. You know, some kids dream of hitting the ball out of Yankee Stadium. That's it. You got to do that. I know. So what was the experience like? How does the filming work? Well, the, I, I knew I was going to do that piece of music six years ago, so I started working on it then, and there's a wonderful recording of, of that performance, and I was able to get the raw footage where it's just seeing his conducting. And then I just spent, you know, all of the time I could, number one, going to the New York Phil three or four times a week, just watching um, conductors. Uh, the L.A. Phil, the Philadelphia Orchestra, became very close with Gustavo Dudamel and Yannick Sagan. And those are two of the very top conductors working today. And 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 then Yannick, who's been in just a, a whole part of Lenny in this film. I had an earpiece, and he was counting tempo for me when I was doing because we I was conducting them. That is live. But the the problem was, I couldn't really hear it because the music's so loud. <laughs> I couldn't really hear it. <laughs> And we shot that over one day. We were only going to shoot that one day, and I messed it up the entire day. I kept getting behind the tempo, and the minute you lose tempo, you're, it's over. So and what happens? The music you. stops. You have to no, do it again. No, they keep playing because they're the best orchestra in the world. But it's not. Um, it's not the same. It's not the same. Um, and I know it. And 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 so the camera knows, and the audience knows it. I went to bed that night. The next morning, I. I um, texted the sound mixer, Steve Morrow, and asked him <laughs> if we had it, which <laughs> I think if you're getting a call from your filmmaker, uh, do you have it? And you're the sound mixer. That's not a very uh, uh, optimistic <laughs> sign. And he said, I think we do. And I, because I always would show up uh, before crew call, really, a couple minutes, at least 20, because I'd been in the makeup chair, I walked into the empty Ely, and I and it was at Lenny sort of saying to me, just do it one more time. Do not give up. And so... The 75 orchestra members of the London Symphony Orchestra brought everybody back one shot. And for whatever reason, David, all of that prep for six years came to me effortlessly, and I was able to let go and conduct the orchestra. So much so, the timpanist came running afterwards. You know, yesterday, everything you did was absolute shit. This is, this is the one you have to use. And I was really? like, no, no, no I, I know, yeah. And I said, no. He said, no, you actually conducted us there, Lenny. And I said, I know, I, 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 yeah, that's, just, that's what's going to be in. And that was it. And um, you'd have to ask Lenny, but I, I'm, you know, I think he'd be very happy. I hope he would. Wow, that's, that's incredible. It was really incredible. I'll never forget it. Scariest thing I've ever done by far. I mean, not even close. Singing at the Oscars live, performing at Glastonbury, nothing even comes close. I want to ask tonight how we set boundaries for ourselves. And the, the way that I wanted to start was to uh, imagine my own story. I can remember being 13 or 14 or 15 years old and having to go out and cut the grass. And 
I would grab my portable CD player or my Walkman and I would have I would make sure to have whatever cassette or whatever CD it was or I would look for something on talk radio if the Walkman had uh, a radio on it as well and the only thing about that though was that the the Guns N' Roses album well for some reason I, I have a vivid memory of listening to Blues Traveler this way or even whatever talk radio I was able to find while it took me 45 minutes or so to cut the front and the back grass at our house. Um, all of that had a, a limit to it, um, both, both sides of the tape, uh, one CD, whatever it was. Um, I'm thinking of going out and driving in my car when I first had my license. And, and I would just have one of those huge old um, binders of hundreds of CDs and that in itself, there, even though there were hundreds of them, that in itself was a uh, was a limit, wasn't it? It was a way of uh, figuring out when to stop because there was no way to listen to all of it. And unless you wanted to get into an accident, you didn't want to be uh, just going through the binder and finding CDs and and, uh, and and doing all of that all at once, even though I probably ended up doing that as well. Um, there was a, an inherent sense of limitation uh, to all of that, and also with television as well. Um, my daughter has loved watching the old Ghostbusters cartoons because nearly all of the episodes now are up on YouTube, and I've told her many times that uh, she has probably seen more of the episodes, and she's seen them more times than I ever uh, could have dreamed of doing when I was her age or even 10 years old uh, because we saw them. It must have been Saturday morning or whenever it was. Um, I don't remember ever seeing them on reruns. Um, there's no way to, uh, uh, unless we were going to tape them on to VHS, to uh, watch them over and over and over again. Um, I can think of the same way of being uh, exposed to HBO for the first time or just watching the Browns or the Cleveland Indians, as they were called back then. Um, there, there just wasn't a way to, if you missed the game and you missed the 11 o'clock sports that night and the uh, you know 8 a.m., 7 a.m. sports the next morning, and if you didn't see the highlights then, you probably would never see them. And there was always a sense of this behind all of these things, at least for me, and I've mentioned this before, where I've had where I had troubles with my ears, and uh, very often, right before I was about to have another of my many surgeries on my ears, I would get horrible ear infections, which would uh, have just great pain in my ears, and I wasn't able to sleep at night. And one of the things I was able to find was uh, late night talk radio. Uh, Larry King is the one that I remember most of all, and it was a great comfort to have his have his voice, have anybody's voice, sort of keeping me, uh, keeping me company when I wasn't able to, uh, wasn't able to sleep. And I think that turned itself into just wanting to have company in general, because I'm not a terribly social person and I don't have many friends. I've never really had a great deal of friends. And uh, just today I realized listening to a podcast about Stephen King called The Losers Club, uh, what, what a huge difference it is um, just, to, just to talk about the 
subgenre out there of Stephen King podcasts, what a huge difference it is listening to someone like me, just one person, talking about their favorite Stephen King books. And what a difference it is listening to The Losers Club, which is four or five people talking about those books. You get a great sense of camaraderie, community, and actual company. But anyway, the, the, what I'm getting at is that uh, when I was younger, um, all I really wanted, actually, was the situation that exists today. I wanted to be able to cut the grass and to not have to flip the tape over. And I wanted access to all of the music uh, that I wanted to have access to, whatever limited version of it that it may have been in high school, but even after that in college and throughout my 20s. Um, the idea of audiobooks hadn't come into my awareness yet, but when it did, um, the idea was, why do I have to carry around these cumbersome things to listen to a 20-hour book? Um, isn't there a better way of doing this thing? Um, as I mentioned with Ghostbusters, also all the shows that I liked when I was younger, um, there are versions of them now. You can just watch all of them uh, constantly, over and over again. You can watch a whole season in one night or one weekend and just binge everything. Um, there's, as, as, I've, uh, as I think I found myself doing lately, you can go from streaming one eight-part mystery series and just go immediately to another eight-part thing or another show or uh, another album, another podcast, uh, another book, um, because that's true as well. Um, I wrote down here, would I say the same thing about books as if there is some sort of qualitative difference between, um, I don't know, reading Dickens, reading Stephen King, reading Shakespeare, reading uh, Tana French, uh, reading James Patterson, reading anything at all, reading poetry. Um, is there uh, some substantive difference between um, reading too much of that constantly, constantly, over and over and over again, and never taking a break, and doing the same thing with the TV show, doing the same thing with uh, having access to thousands and thousands and thousands of songs, and never giving yourself one moment of quiet. Is there a difference between that and uh, listening to uh, a perfectly good educational series of lectures on a given subject while you're walking down the street? And as I remember doing a long time ago, uh, listening to one of those lectures and listening to one of the lecturers say, my students do not remember what the sound of their feet on the ground is because they always have their headphones in. This must have been recorded um, in the late 90s or early 2000s. You can imagine how much, uh, how much more so that is the case now. And of course, what did I do? I kept listening to the lecture while I was walking down the road. I did not know the sound of my own steps either. So no, I don't think there's really a difference. Um, I think it's possible to read too much just as well as it's possible to watch too much, to listen too much, to, in general, just be saturated and surrounded by um, too much. And I remember uh, an ex-girlfriend's mother telling me once, uh, a long time ago now, that when she was in her mid-20s to mid-30s, maybe something like that, it was a, it was a good chunk of time, uh, she had gotten into a, a spate of just reading 
people's autobiographies. And she just sort of sat back from that at one point and just thought, what, what, am, I, what am I doing? You know, it's not that it was anything bad, um, reading William Tecumseh Sherman, and um, for some reason that's the one that comes to mind. Uh, autobiographies of uh, spiritual figures, stuff like that, just sort of going all over the place, but then just suddenly realizing, um, I don't really need to be doing this. Uh, it's, it's worthwhile, it's good, but um, I don't need to be doing this. And it just seems that there isn't that kind of awareness of a need for a gap nowadays. Um, it's just assumed that uh, you will constantly be aware of what is on the front page of whatever place you get your news from. You'll be checking it all day long. It's just a, it's just a twitch with your thumb nowadays, isn't it? You just pick up your phone, click on it, and, and, uh, and swipe down so that it refreshes. Um, it's just assumed that you won't drive around in a completely silent car. Um, it's just assumed that if you are the bookish type, that you will always just have uh, a three-foot stack of things that you're going through, um, sort of nonstop. There was a time when, uh, if I came to the end of a book, I might wait a, a full day before I started something else. Or if I came to the end of a particularly say, long audiobook or a, a long series or season of something um, on TV, I would wait a day or two on purpose before starting something else. And I realize I don't even do that anymore. It's almost, the, the impulse is almost to just immediately go to something else. And it's not even a matter, again, of the apparently high or lowbrow nature of these things. Um, you can go from a so-called um, great director's movie and then go immediately into uh, just another uh, paint-by-the-numbers documentary about spycraft, I don't know, something like that, um, just without thinking about it. Just go from one thing to the other without stopping. And I just wonder where the, where any of us out there, or any of you out there, uh, if you have a sense of needing discipline for that or of wanting it or of actually having implemented it, um, what do you do? Because I realize that I'm sort of uh, just uh, a mess. I'm a productive mess, I suppose, in between all of these uh, things that are firing all at once. I am getting done the things that I want to get done, but there is still the sense of of maybe it could have a little more form uh, than it really does. Maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe my teenage self listening to Blues Traveler or Rush Limbaugh, you know, 30, 30 years ago, um, 20, 25, 30 years ago, uh, maybe he got what he wanted and that's just the way we live now, quote unquote. Maybe that's just it. Because the other thing too, and I remember this very vividly as well, when I was thinking about these things and when I was trying to put them into an essay that never found a form, never really got written properly, uh, what, what was I doing that night? But I was going to go pick up a pizza. And so I made sure to leave my phone in the car. I made sure to leave whatever book I was reading in the car 
because usually I bring one or both of those things and I'll read while I'm waiting, I'll listen to something while I'm waiting, and this is what we do. And, and I just made a point of just going in, giving my name, and just standing there and waiting. And what did I do? I looked up at the, uh, the big screen TV, the flat screen that was up in the corner of the pizzeria, and I watched the ads on the screen float by for the kind of food that they do catering events for, um, and ads for local car dealerships, local car repair places, and I think the name of a magician who came to the pizzeria every Thursday in the summertime. And I really had to think, um, is this, is me standing here looking at these ads, uh, is this better than, than me uh, reading a poem or listening to a few minutes of a podcast, being just another person with earbuds in, sitting on the bench, not paying attention to anybody? Um, is this better than that? Is this worse than that? Are they equal? Does it matter? Am I thinking too much? Right? All of that. Um, and I really don't have, um, I don't have a coherent answer uh, for that at all. And I'm just wondering what anybody else out there thinks about these things.